Guys, I've been asked, what would be some good books as we study Revelation? I've mentioned David Jeremiah's Escape the Coming Night. I've mentioned Perry Stone's Unleashing the Beast. Some have asked about uh, history. I've mentioned on more than one occasion, you can't really understand prophecy if you don't understand a little bit of history. Uh, one of the books I would suggest you read, or at least pick up if you have a chance to, is a book by a guy named Alexander Hislop. It's called The Tale of Two Babylons. And it's a book written in the 19th century. It's very scholastic. It's not kind of the daily bread you get up in the morning and do a little 10-minute devotion before you leave. It's not the kind of fireside reading you might do, you know, before you go to bed at night. It's heavy-duty stuff. I mean, it's one of those books, it's just, uh, it's a hard read. But what he does there is really trace pagan religion. And he uh, does a really good job of documenting uh, the tale of two Babylons, meaning ancient Babylonian mystery religion, paganism that was alive at the time of Constantine, and how it began to mix in with what it meant to be a Christian. And some, uh, of course, anytime you talk about history, you know, there's, there's always controversy, and there are people who say, oh, Alexander Hislop, no, he, he didn't do this, and he didn't document this. You know, the reality is, when you're talking about ancient history, as I said, it's difficult at times to discern where the myth begins and the truth really ends. That makes sense? But what's no doubt about it is somewhere along the way, there was that seed of truth, this myth of the Madonna and child, that even the Jews in the days of Jeremiah were seen worshiping the queen of heaven, and they would go into the, even the temple of God long after they stopped wa worshiping the true and living God. And, and he rebukes them because they're worshiping Tammuz, the son of the queen of heaven. And that worship of Madonna and child had been around for generation after generation from culture to culture, clear on up to the time of Constantine and this Pergamus and this church at Pergamus, Pergamus, which I don't believe coincidentally, I believe providentially. It literally means much marriage. Uh, Pergamus means polygamy because this is the time of church history where the church began marrying the world and the truth of God was prostituted with the lies of pagan religion. And by the way, you get to the back of the book of Revelation, Revelation 17, 5. What is that tribulation religion? What does God call it? Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. You see that church in the tribulation, Jesus says, is not a chaste virgin. It's a harlot bride that's prostituted the truth with lies. And you can begin to see why. Jesus says, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans because you see people who do not have access to the written revelation, if you don't have the light of God's word, you are easily controlled. And knowledge is power. And for a thousand years, people did not have biblical knowledge. That knowledge was controlled by a few elites. And so consequently, for a thousand years, people didn't know. They were in the dark. People who are ignorant of the truth are easily controlled because knowledge is power. Now you can begin to see why we do things like the well on a 4.30 Sunday afternoon. Because we want you to know the deepest knowledge of God's word so that you can quickly and easily spot the lie. And lies are all around us. So questions, comments, as we talk about the church at Pergamos. Yes. Wait for Jeremy, would you? He's got a mic, and it's going to help us I, if, as uh, others will be listening.
With the pervasiveness of the mystery Babylon that lasted till 590 AD, who, it makes you wonder how we even got the Holy Scriptures with purity in it and who decided, I mean, of course, I, it's almost scary how we got the Bible and who decided on the books and all of that. Yeah, great question. So keep coming because we're going to be following church history all the way up to the times in which we live. And each of these seven churches represent a different stage of church history. But the reality is God did miraculously not only inspire the Word of God, but preserve the Word of God. Were it not for God miraculously preserving it, it would have been lost completely during that thousand years of darkness. Because you see, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that began this turning point in church history that stretched from about 312 to about 590. We're going to find out what happened in 590 next week. 590, about then, is when the Roman Empire politically decreased and the Holy Roman Empire increased. And see, that political vacuum of leadership that declined with the political power base of Rome. Well, as the political Rome was dying, religious Rome was thriving. And so consequently, the Roman church became the most powerful institution on earth for a thousand years. I don't just mean religiously, I mean politically. It was the Pope who was the most powerful man for a thousand years. He would raise up the European kings, he would depose the European king. And we're going to see what the implications were uh, next week as we study the next church, the church at Thyatira. But here's what Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 5. He said, not one jot or tittle will be passed from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, when he said those words, he wasn't merely uh, promising divine inspiration, but rather divine preservation. And that's what he did through those thousand years where it was literally a capital offense to have in your hands the word of God. I mean, literally, it would get you killed. But what God did through a thousand years, and we're going to see, is that there were little pockets of believers throughout Europe. Uh, we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation here in a couple of weeks, and that's represented by the Church of Philadelphia, and you'll see why if you keep coming. But we're also going to discover there were believers throughout those thousand years that were persecuted mercilessly and horrifically. And we're going to see something uh, in history known as the Waldenses, of the French Huguenots, of the Albigenses. These were European people groups that existed for a thousand years. And they resisted the church and the tyranny. And the reason why is they had just a, enough light to know the difference between the lies and the truth. And so for a thousand years, the truth prevailed in spite of all odds and courageous men like William Tyndale against the church's uh, laws began to translate it then into the common tongue of Europeans at the time and uh, guys like Wycliffe and these guys uh, they per were persecuted and they paid dearly with their lives another really good read would be a, a little pamphlet a little book called the trail of blood another really good read would be the Fox's book of martyrs which gives you eyewitness accounts of the martyrdom of Christians down through the ages from the time of Rome and then clear through the time of the Dark Ages. Do you understand that more Christian blood was spilled, not through Roman persecution, 
but through the inquisitions of Roman Catholicism. Now, as you heard me say up there, guys, this is not an indictment against today's Catholics necessarily. This is not an indictment against all Roman Catholic people. Uh, we can talk about corruption within the Baptist denomination if you want to. We can talk about corruption within the Presbyterian denomination if you want to. But here's the point. It wasn't Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals that were writing church history at this time. There was no such thing. It was the Roman Catholic Church that was writing church history. And that's why we're talking about them. Because they were the ones in charge. Because they are the ones, in some way, that married Christianity with paganism. Which is why even today, so many well-meaning Roman Catholics, as a part of their church practice, practice things that honestly are not, it's not in the Bible. And they don't know where it comes from. And I've been asked, well, Pastor Phil, what about this? Why do we do this? Pastor Phil, what about this? Why do we do this? And the honest answer is, it's not in the Bible. It traces its roots back to mystery, Babylonian, pagan religion. A time in church history of much marriage. Yes. Gail. I, I don't know that much about Catholicism. I'll just say that right up front. But I kind of always thought that maybe the reason they did the um, priest confessions was because of James 5. You know, confess your sins one to another. Is there any truth in any of that? Um, James 5 I think verse 17 says, confess our trespasses one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And so here's the reality. There is a principle in scripture of confessing our sins to each other, but it's not to be forgiven of that sin, but to find healing from that sin. Sure. So they go to a priest to be absolved of their sin. They were taught to go to a priest to be forgiven of their sin. What are we taught in scripture? 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here's the deal, only God can forgive your sin. Jesus alone has the power to do that. Why would we, uh, in Christian community, confess our sins not to be forgiven? We already are. But there's a difference between being forgiven of our sin and healed from our sin. A lot of Christians know they've been forgiven, but years and years later, they still don't feel like they're forgiven. They still live in guilt instead of grace. And here's what James was teaching. In Christian community, when you confess that openly, God uses them as his vehicle, as his conduit to bring true healing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. You betcha. Well, here's the deal. Doctrine of the Nicolaitans persists not just within the Roman church even today, but in many churches even like ours. You know, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it's immediately implied. And I've been in churches that weren't Roman Catholic. But at the moment there's an implication that, well, you know, the pastor, he's the all-knowing one. He's the all-wise one. So whatever he says must be true. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now here's the reality. Uh, God will use pastors and teachers to in, in teach you, obviously, hopefully inspire you, 
But in the end, guess what? You have the same access to God he has too. There's not one man alive that has more access to God than you as a born-again child of God. You have the spirit of truth living within you. What that means is, if you want to study, God's going to show you things too, with or without that pastor or priest here. Pardon? No, you can't grow without reading it. But see, um, a lot of people are taught uh, they don't need to read the scripture. And in some cases, Roman Catholics have been taught it's an unpardonable sin to read the scripture. I was uh, going door to door years ago in El Salvador. We were on a mission trip in El Salvador. Of course, Latin America, largely a Roman Catholic area of the world. And uh, I went to the door of a little old lady, beautiful, precious, little old uh, Salvadorian lady opens the door. We're witnessing. And I want her to read it. I have a Spanish Bible. I want her to read it for herself. She begins to tremble. She begins to shake. And through the interpreter, what she says is, I can't read that. I'll go to hell. She had been taught by her priest that for her to read the Bible for herself was an unpardonable sin. And for generations, that has persisted even today. Somebody else, yep. American Catholicism is changing some. Um, I think more, more American Catholics today are doing Bible study, maybe as never before. Uh, so American Catholicism is uh, e e changing, I think, a lot faster than other parts of the world. Uh, but historically, Roman Catholics aren't taught to study the Word of God. They're taught to listen to the Pope. Papal authority is equal to the Word of God and its authority. So any time in church history where by papal decree, uh, the Pope makes a statement or a doctrine that runs contrary to written revelation, uh, in their mind, there's no contradiction. And that's why so many times down through church history, uh, the Pope has said one thing, the Word of God says another thing, and uh, the papal authority is seen as greater authority than the Word of God and its authority. When the Pope speaks, as though God himself is speaking. Yes? Um, in light of what we just learned about the pagan holidays and all, should we be maybe looking at celebrating more of the biblical feasts? I know okay. it's kind of been a trend yeah. the last few years. So, uh, great question. So, um, you know, when we, when we celebrate as a church Easter, I mean, the reality is we're not celebrating Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection. It's Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Weekend. I say that because I want us to stay balanced, guys. There's a trend toward, uh, well, we're not going to celebrate Easter, and uh, we need to get our 12-gauge shotguns out and start blowing away the Easter bunny. All right? Uh, that, that, here's the reality, guys. Ancient Christians hijacked these pagan holidays. So I have no problem today with the fact that millions of people around the world celebrate Easter and they do not remember Ishtar. What they remember, though, is the resurrection. It's not a bad thing. I have no problem with the fact that December the 25th is a historically pagan holiday. We don't know when Jesus' birthday is, but ancient Christians began remembering the birth of Christ, hijacking what was a pagan holiday on December the 25th. So we're not wrong to celebrate Christmas because nobody today remembers the pagan holiday. All they do now is remember the birth of Christ, right? 
So I don't want us to go crazy here, but here's the deal, guys. Um, Jesus in Matthew 5 said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. As New Testament Christians, why don't we have to keep the Old Testament Jewish feasts and festivals? I'll tell you why we don't have to keep the Passover. I'll tell you why we don't have to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll tell you why we don't have to keep the Feast of Pentecost. There's seven of them all together because Jesus fulfilled it, past tense. See, for us today to say we've got to keep the Jewish feast would make us no different than modern-day Galatians who are teaching that if you want to be a Christian, you still have to, as a Greek, go through pagan circumcision. In essence, what the Galatians were teaching is that you got to become a Jew to become a Christian. And Paul said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has deceived you? Do you not know that if you're going to put yourself back under the law, you are cursed by the law because you can't keep all of the law? James 2.10 says, if you stumble in even one point of the law, in the eyes of God, you've stumbled on all points of the law because the law demands perfection. And I say that because um, well-meaning Christians argue, well, we shouldn't do Easter because that's pagan. We need to keep the Passover and we need, okay, if you want to. For a devotional, inspirational type of feast or festival, it's awesome. The symbolism is remarkable. But to say that you ought to or you have to, you're putting yourself back under the law, which means you better come to church with a turtle dove too. (laughs) Or perhaps a lamb. And you better have a sharp knife when you come. You know what I'm saying? Because you're about to get bloody. Are you prepared to do that too? See, that's what happens, guys, with so many well-meaning Christians today. They don't rightly divide the word of truth. First Timothy, uh, Second Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved a workman. Uh, studying the word of God takes work. A workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The first thing you ask when you study the word of God is to whom was it written and when was it written? You cannot take things written specifically doctrinally to the Jews under the old covenant and apply them doctrinally to you, a New Testament Christian living under the new covenant. If people try to do that all the time, the Galatians were doing that. Hey, there are those that, for example, would argue, well, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, the only Sabbath is Saturday. You ought to be coming to church on the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. Saturday's the Sabbath. The only time you ought to come to church is Saturday. It's the Sabbath. To which I say, yup. (laughs) But to whom was it written? Do you understand, as a 21st century Gentile Christian, you, doctrinally, have never been told to keep the Sabbath holy. Should you keep it devotionally in principle? Yeah, you ought to set a Sabbath rest aside weekly. But doctrinally, listen, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, then you better keep all seven feasts too, and you better go back to the temple, which does not exist, and when it does exist, you better bring a bullock or a lamb or a turtle dove too. You see, When you put yourself back under the law, you are cursed by the law because you can't keep the whole law. That's why Jesus said, I have fulfilled the law. It is fulfilled past tense. So now I can deliver to you a new law, the law of grace. You've been delivered from the old law. 
which could only bring condemnation, it could not bring salvation. Wow, this is good. Good questions. Yes. Okay, sorry. Hang on. Hang on to that question. Yes. I just had, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovered Catholic. Uh, most of my family's still involved. Got a lot of them in here. Yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, and it was kind of funny. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about Alexander Hislop. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good read. Um, but uh, the thing is, I never was encouraged as a Roman Catholic to ever read the Bible. And I'd have Christians ask me, they'd say, um, why don't you read the Bible? I don't have to. Why not? Because I'm Catholic. Well, don't you want anything about the Bible? No. I just ask the priest. What happens if you sin? I just, you know, I go, I confess, and then I'll burn a couple candles. Oh, what about hell? Um, yeah, I got to go to purgatory for a while, but then eventually I'll be into heaven. And, you know, another can of worms that wasn't even mentioned was the uh, Apocrypha, the Catholic uh, Church's stance with the Apocrypha. So that's a very good question and answer, sir. Thank you. Great observation. So where did we get the six, six books of the Bible? Okay, so the early church recognized the Old Testament Jewish scriptures as inspired. Those early Christians were largely Jewish. They didn't think about leaving Judaism to become Christians. For them, it was a natural progression of their Judaism to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so the early church held to the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as inspired. Now, the 27 books of the New Testament, we call it the canon of scripture. And you ask specifically, how do we know? We got the right books. How did we get them? How did God preserve them? Well, uh, the canon was the standard metric. In other words, the measuring rod. Of the many letters the apostles wrote, how come these made it in, right? Of the ancient works of antiquity, what was it with these 27? What was the measuring rod used by the early church? Well, there was a couple things. Number one, there was five altogether, but two specifically. Number one, uh, it had to have been written by a recognized apostle or an immediate associate of an apostle. Now, being an apostle, Jesus Christ, you had to have qualified by having seen him personally, walked with him from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. So that's a very small pool of people. Okay? So uh, this is why Paul said, I was one born out of season. Everybody knew he wasn't one of the original 12. But he did, in fact, see the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. This is why he was always having to defend his authority as an apostle, especially to the Corinthians. So first of all, if it wasn't written by an apostle or an immediate associate like Luke, it didn't make the cut. And then after that, there could be no historical discrepancy. This is why the seven books of the Apocrypha that the Catholic Church inserted in the 16th century didn't make the cut with the early church. Because they have historical uh, significance, but there's known discrepancies historically, meaning it's historical record. Uh, that's not right. If it's really inspired scripture, it can never be wrong. So there could be no discrepancies historically. There could be no discrepancies theologically. For example, purgatory is taught in one of the seven books of the Apocrypha. Well, it didn't make the cut initially with the early church because Paul taught, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no in-between state. And so those uh, seven books didn't make that initial cut. But by the 16th century, those books had things in them that the Roman church had been teaching already for generations. And so they found a little proof texting, we might say. What? Yeah, they're good history. 
I mean, you read 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, that's a historical record of the Maccabean revolt in the intertestament period where the Jews won their freedom and liberty from the Grecian kings. I mean, it's a great read, but in terms of being inspired scripture, that's why it didn't make the cut. Hey, let me answer this and then we got to be done. So Paul uh, emailed um, a question that I want to make sure I get to. And I told Paul, instead of answering an email, I just answer it in front of everybody, okay? So we'll take this one, um, and then we got to be done. So a couple of weeks ago, Paul <clears throat> emailed this to me. Um, let's see, where should I start? I have questions about the imminent return of Christ. As to the Matthew 24, 36 verse, this is true. Jesus did say that, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, but my Father only. Those verses there are not talking about the rapture, but rather at some point after the rapture, the second coming, and just prior to the millennial kingdom, correct? Yes. Matthew 24, the context is the tribulation, not the church age. So he's giving signs of the second coming, not signs of the rapture. That changes everything in terms of the context of what's about to follow. When did he say it? Uh, when he was on the earth, he willingly veiled some of his power as God while on the earth as human. Uh, that's absolutely accurate. Meaning when Jesus said, only the Father knows. Listen, Jesus in heaven today is not going, Father, tell me when it's going to be. Please, please tell me. No, no. God, Jesus is God. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. But temporarily in his humanity, he veiled it willingly, temporarily. Now today, uh, does the Son know everything the Father knows? Absolutely. There is a moment, a predetermined time, that Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom, though it was veiled from him temporarily while he was here. Revelation means unveiling. Jesus is now in heaven on the throne. Now it appears from Revelation that God gave him, Jesus, this revelation. So when he returned to heaven at some point, he gained the knowledge, absolutely, uh, that he willingly did not have on earth. Um, why? To show his servants what? Things that must shortly take place. Who did he give it to? John, who wrote Revelation. Did he also give it to Paul? Uh, Revelation that we're now studying was given specifically to John. Now, God gave other revelation to Paul. And that's why a lot of what we study in Revelation, we're going to cross-reference to Paul. Paul wrote a great deal, especially to the Thessalonians, about the day of the Lord. Now, Revelation 3.3, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So we are to watch for his coming because if we do not, he will be like a thief and we will not know what hour he will come. Paul writes this, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. But let us watch. Here it looks like we can see that he comes upon them, non-believers, as a thief. But we are to watch so that this day does not overtake us as a thief. By the way, the United Nations National Day of Peace, by the way, he says, is 921-17, and their slogan, 2017, just happens to be straight out of James 5, peace and safety. Hmm. Uh, those some observations, Paul. I'm not sure if I'm going to answer your question, jump in uh, if I'm not answering it, but I think what he's asking is, um, can we know? the day and the hour. I mean, can we know? Jesus said we're to watch so that we are not overtaken as by a thief. 
And I think the implication, guys, is this. Non-believers are going to be completely taken by surprise. He's going to come, as he said, like a thief in the night. Now, we don't have to be overcome and overtaken as with a thief. We cannot know the day and the hour, which is why, honestly, guys, uh, you know, 923, how many questions did I have to answer about September the 23rd? It's the Revelation 12 sign. No, I hate to be the party pooper. It's not, and it never was. We're going to study Revelation 12 eventually. We're going to find out what Revelation 12 is really talking about. But here's the point. Uh, the moment you think you figured out the day, if Jesus was coming then, now he's not. <laughs> so quit guessing. <laughs> We're not going to know the day and the hour. But we don't have to be overtaken as a thief. You know why? Because he has given us signs. He's given us the seasons. We know, based on the signs, we've talked about them here, we're living in the season where indeed he could come to rapture away his bride. Without question, we're living at that time. We're living on that time of transition at the end of the seventh stage of church history, the Laodicean church age. He's about to transition to a new dispensation, the millennial kingdom. And in between the two is this little seven-year tribulation. He's coming. Let's be watching. Amen? Guys, I love you very much. I'll see you right back here next week. We're going to study next week the church.